Member, we need to pray for uh, Jeff Phipps and the mission team that's down in Natal, Brazil. Uh, they're having two conferences this year. One is for pastors, the other is for anyone who comes. And they will start on Friday, November the 11th, and continue through November the 22nd. We need to pray. There's some financial needs there, and we need to be uh, in prayer for that. We also need to uh, be reminded of the schedule coming up, that uh, Thanksgiving is two weeks away, and we will not be having Bible class on Thursday night of Thanksgiving, and then we will also uh, not be having Bible class on Tuesday night, December the 6th, because of the pre-trib rapture study group. We always take uh, equipment up there and help with the uh, uh, video and recordings and sound and things of that nature. So those two dates, we will have uh, church worship services on Sunday morning, December the 25th, and we will be having the Lord's table on that uh, Sunday morning. So those are the main announcements, I think, on... December the 11th, we're having our church uh, Christmas dinner after the morning uh, worship service on December the 11th. I think that's most of the uh, significant time. you have an announcement? Men's prayer breakfast on the 19th. Men's prayer breakfast on November, on November the 19th. Okay. And deacons meeting. It's a week from Saturday. Okay. Scripture reading. Instead of the usual verses, I... Recite. I want, thought it would be mindful. Uh, I do remember that um, in the uh, Roman Empire, after a great triumph, military triumph, when the generals were uh, brought and fated in Rome and they had their victory or their uh, triumph parade, there was always someone whispering in their ear, all glory is fleeting. Let me remind you, Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he should be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and assault land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. If you're interested, read Psalm 1 along with that verse. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. I think there's a textual version there, a textual variant that says politician, but I'm not sure about that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Uh, We must be reminded that Even though for many they are rejoicing over the election, we must be, and I think for a lot of people they're not so much rejoicing over over President-elect Trump as much as they're rejoicing that um, Hillary Clinton did not get elected. 
and uh, that maybe we'll be in a post-Clinton era and the country can move forward, but that's another topic. Before we begin, let's make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. We need to... It is not a sin to rejoice over the defeat of the wicked or the evil. might be a sin to gloat, but it's not a sin to rejoice over the defeat of the, of the wicked or the evil. Um, we need to make sure we're in fellowship and confess any known sin if necessary so we can be in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have you to turn to, and we know that history is governed by you, and whether uh, the election had turned out a different way or the way it has, we know that you're in control, and we trust you, and our trust is in you, and we realize that the destiny of this nation and your plan for this dispensation go on, and that you are in control. But, Father, we are thankful because we believe that under this administration there will be less of an assault against um, biblical truth, less of an assault against the First Amendment, and there will be more more freedom to, for Christians or less of a threat from the government uh, to espouse our deeply held uh, convictions of the truth of Scripture. And we pray for the safety of this new president, as we have prayed for the safety of previous presidents and uh, politicians. And we pray that, as Paul exhorts us in First Timothy chapter 2, uh, that we are to pray that uh, the government will basically leave us alone and that we may be able to carry out the great commission to learn the Word of God and to grow and to tell others about Jesus Christ and that we can have a stronger, a nation that has a stronger position of blessing for Israel. And fathers, we study your word tonight. Help us to understand what is going on in your word and to think more accurately, precisely, biblically about uh, what is taught in the scripture regarding submission. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're continuing our study that actually this section begins in um, verse 13 of chapter 2, and it extends down through uh, at least the end of chapter 4. And then we get to a a conclusion of the epistle. But it begins by focusing on the issue of submission in, in many different areas, but everything in this area is is couched in terms related to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. And again, we have to learn to think biblically. And thinking biblically is that whenever we're thinking about life situations, whenever we're thinking about conflicts, whether we're talking about arguments over political policy or whether we're talking about principles governing personal relationships, we always have to go back to Uh, ultimately to understanding who Jesus Christ is in terms of the hypostatic union, the union of humanity and deity in the person of Christ, as well as the work of Christ and ultimately the Trinity. Always starts there. So what we see here as our focus tonight is going to be on understanding 
what the Bible teaches about equality and uh, subordination. And this is an issue that just isn't going away in our culture, and we have to think a little bit more precisely about it because you have one political party and one philosophy that just seems to uh, focus the spotlight on women's inequality and continuing to bring that out and make an issue out of it as if the last hundred years haven't happened at all. And a failure to understand uh, biblically that there are distinctions between men and women. You would think it was obvious physically, but obviously it's not so obvious that most people in Western civilization still believe that. And they are trying to act as if that is not true in in many, many different areas of life. There are some things that are true of women that are make them better at some tasks than men. And the opposite is true, but, that, but it's, it's important to understand um, that how you view the role of men and women is directly related to how you view the Trinity, how you view the hypostatic union, and ultimately how you view creation. Ultimately, this is where origins comes into play, and it's crucial There is a foundational difference between pagan views of origins, which includes Darwinian evolution, and biblical creationism. All that comes into play, so we'll we'll look at that. That's really the presuppositional background for what both Paul and Peter teach in this area of submission and authority. We've seen in the flow of the argument here that we're to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man or every create, created institution uh, of man. And the context is talking about authority, so it's often thought of as ordinance, but it's really more precisely understood as, as sort of the cre- created institutions within human human societies. That they're, uh, we're to submit to those for the Lord's sake whether to king, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent uh, by him, by the governors for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who, who do good. And it's this word hupatasso, which means to submit or to subordinate yourself uh, to their authority. The basic problem, as we've seen, is our own sin nature. We're born spiritually dead. We're born with a an inherited principle of corruption, a capacity that is ours inherited from Adam because of sin. This is important to understand because when we engage others in conversation who are maybe they're untaught Christians on the one hand or they're not Christians, then they tend to have a view of man that is that treats him more highly than he ought to be treated. Uh, and they they fail to understand that man is inherently corrupt. If man is not inherently corrupt and man is basically good, then what flows from that logically it, in terms of the history of ideas is that man is perfectible if he's basically good. Man is perfectible. And if man is basically good, then a society of human beings is basically good and is perfectible, and therefore a utopic or perfect environment is possible. And this is why 
Um, you have a lot of the problems today because within the framework of progressivism, which had its birth uh, out of 19th century liberalism, and it's blended with ideas of socialism and Marxism, all have as their basic idea the perfectibility of man and the perfectibility of, of society. And this is an idea that is sort of borrowed uh, or stolen from Christianity. And uh, Karl Marx, actually, and I've told you this before, but you've probably forgotten it, was more than likely a believer. Uh, John Hintz, who is pastor of Tucson Bible Church, has a paper he can no longer find in his files that was written by Karl Marx on justification by faith alone when he was in high school. When Karl Marx was about 14 years old, his father converted to Christianity and for a period of about four years, he was he was a a Christian, and he wrote a high school paper on the doctrine of justification by faith, which was biblical and Lutheran. That means it was correct because Luther had it right, and then he rejected Christianity and went down the road of so many into into apostasy, and, but he had enough of a Christian biblical influence. Of course, we'll never know until the judgment seat as to whether that's he truly he believed that or not. But um, he had enough of an influence from the Christian environment of England in the 19th century, and in England in the 19th century, among Angli the Anglican Church dominated, and among Anglican priests, J.C. Ryle said that well over 50 percent of Anglican priests in the 19th century were premillennial. They were fairly biblical. This is the group out of which British restorationism for Israel and Christian Zionism uh, d derived. So they were, they were pretty solid until they got turned by the late 19th century by, by liberalism. But you have these philosophies from Herbert Spencer, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, uh, others that perverted a Christian idea and so they took this idea of perfection or a future kingdom and they brought it over into their ideology that man could do it on his own. And by the time you get to the late 19th century and early 20th century, they've developed a, in liberalism, they've taken the idea of the kingdom of God and they've perverted it into this utopic uh, reality. They're postmodern, so man in his society through government, can bring about this kingdom of God on the earth, and uh, then Jesus will come. But they sort of do away with the idea of Jesus, and they're just left with this idea that you can bring in this perfection. Now, most of that idea got got pretty much pretty much hemorrhaged out on the fields of Flanders in World War One, but the residuals of Marxism stayed with it. But the Bible teaches as a Christian that we look at these things differently. We look at relationships differently. We look at the relationship between human beings differently, the relationships in families differently. We look at the relationships in the workplace differently, and we look at the the, the relationships between govern, the governing and the governed because we understand that both the govern, governing and the governed are corrupt. And so you don't want to bring power into uh, into one person or one group 
because absolute power corrupts absolutely and man is inherently corrupt. And so we have this basic problem. Basic orientation, as I've said, of sin nature is that we're self-absorbed. And so uh, whenever we're put into an authority situation, everybody has a problem with dealing with somebody over them that they disagree with. And they may disagree strongly with somebody, but, you know, if you're not the boss, then there's a problem. And we have to understand that, and that's learning authority orientation. We're seeing a whole situation now where these young people who haven't been taught respect for authority, haven't been taught personal respect for property. In fact, they've been taught a lie in terms of so many of the divine institutions. And then when they don't get their way, as what happened in this, this presidential election, then they start throwing all these little t- temper tantrums and they start whining and they go through personal meltdowns because there's nothing to give them stability. And one of the things that has really been a part of my thinking for for quite a while, but in the last several months it's been a little more focused, is asking the question, how do we as believers engage uh, these young people evangelistically? See, you, you can't, we'll get into this in a minute, but you can't start at the, at the surface issue of, of social issues or political issues and that because the underlying issue is more, found, more, more fundamental, and that is their, their spiritual uh, beliefs and their relationship to God. But how do we communicate? Because unless the heart is changed, and that can only be done through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, unless the heart is changed, then even it doesn't matter who we elect into office, it's not going to last. The potential for a recovery is there. But the problem in this country isn't a political problem. The problem is an ideological problem that grows out of human viewpoint. Unless till that's changed, nothing else is going to solve the problem. But this is the problem. This is why we have problems with rebellions and rebellious teenagers and rebellious wives and rebellious husbands and rebellious employees because there's a failure to be grace-oriented, to understand grace and to understand authority. So in this first section, as we studied, Peter applies this to servants. Literally, it's slaves. We we can't minimize that term. We can't sanitize it. He's talking about slaves. Slaves were the lowest rung in the culture, in the society. They had absolutely no rights. And And neither Paul nor Peter come along and say, we've got to end slavery. What they talked about was what has to happen to change people from the inside out, knowing that if people came to Christ and got submitted to to God and to his word, that eventually it would change the society and to change the culture. You can't change it by legislation. This kind of change can't be legislated. This kind of change doesn't come from shifting political parties. This kind of change only comes when there is an internal uh, shift that is that is spiritual, and this is what when our verse talks about the fact that uh, we're to submit with fear. That fear must be understood in the framework of Scripture. That it's the fear of the Lord. That is, we serve our masters because we serve the Lord. 
We are submitted to whomever we're to submit to because we are submitted to the Lord. It's not related to that individual. We are to show respect and submit to the governor. Even if the governor is a loser, even if the governor is a failure, even if we disagree with him completely, we're to submit not because we're submitting to him, but because we're submitting to the Lord. That is a difficult thing to get grasped. That's what genuine humility is all about. It is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. But you see these same things. I've talked about this before going on. Titus 2, uh, exhort bond servants or slaves to be obedient to their masters. Uh, Titus 3, 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 is where Paul develops this even more in, um, in the epistle of the Ephesians. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. It always comes back to Christ. Human relationships must ultimately be patterned on Christ and on the relationships within the Trinity. We don't start with creation. We start with God. Ephesians 6, 9, you masters also, they're to treat the slaves with respect. And we'll get to why in just a minute. 1 Peter 2.19 goes on to say, and I pointed this out last time, for this is commendable. I disagree with that translation. I think that's confusing. The word there is charis, which should be translated grace. Peter is saying this is grace. Submission to an unjust authority is grace. Not, grace means that we are kind because the, even when the person doesn't agree, doesn't, uh, isn't worthy of it, when the person doesn't deserve it. That's what grace orientation is. So you submit to the authority that's unworthy because that's grace. That's being kind, undeserved, unmerited favor towards this idiot, this loser, this failure, this person who doesn't understand anything because he's a stupid idiot with a block of mud between his ears. You probably said it worse than I did. This is grace. If because of conscience towards God, our norms and standards change as believers, uh, you endure grief, suffering unjustly. And you have people say, oh, what? I, I, I'm not going to be treated in an unjust manner. Well, that's arrogance. Now, does that mean that you don't take somebody to court? Not necessarily. Does that mean that you don't call law enforcement to deal with some criminal activity? Uh, certainly you do that. It it means that you personally are not going to get your knickers in a knot over somebody's unjust treatment of you. You can have a relaxed mental attitude. Friday night when I go to um, Country Bible Church to uh, be the evening speaker, my psalm is going to be Psalm 37. Psalm 37 begins, Do not fret because of evildoers. And that word that's it's translated fret four times in the text doesn't mean simply don't worry. The, the people who are demonstrating, the, uh, those who voted for Hillary Clinton who woke up Wednesday morning and they're going through emotional meltdowns, that's what fretting is. Okay, this is an intensive word in the Hebrew, and they're fretting. People who look at 
changes in politics and it ruins their life. Those people are fretting. People who get up in the morning and their kids make decisions that they don't like and they fall apart. That's fretting. It's it's anxiety and worry on steroids. And what the scripture says is don't fret because of evildoers. Get the long game into your head that God is going to uh, bring justice and righteousness. Don't worry if you're being treated unjustly and innocently. We're going to see that in our study of Psalm uh, Psalm 59 on Sunday morning. So Peter says this is grace. If because of conscience towards God you endure grief or sorrow, suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, and some translations translate grace as my favor. This finds favor with God. I mean, I think it's, it's grace. It, this is grace before God, grace in action in our lives. We're treating people who don't deserve it better than they ought to, just like God treated us better on Tuesday. I believe that God graced us out and withheld uh, what I think will eventually come in this nation, to give us an opportunity maybe to straighten out spiritually, to get involved in evangelism. The only thing that's going to change is if evangelicals who know the truth of God's Word get involved personally in evangelism with those who need to know the truth. The only thing that's going to change this country is going to be the gospel and the Word of God. But fortunately, the evangelical, evangelicals came out. 79% of all evangelicals voted for against Hillary. They voted for Donald Trump. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. If you remember not too many months ago in my analysis of this, I said evangelicals failed to come out and vote in the 2012 election because they didn't want to vote for a Mormon. Evangelicals also failed to get out um, in 2008, but in 2016, the highest perc- highest number of evangelicals came out and voted on tu- on Tuesday and in the two weeks before in the early voting than any election prior in this country, and at least in, since the 20th century. In the 19th century, almost all Christians were evangelicals. So that's remember the evangelical vote came out, and it made a difference. Uh, one article I read said that it that what got Trump o- over the top was an evangelical vote and the conservative Catholic vote. That's what won it. And so it is those who have a belief in eternity and in absolutes in the Word of God that made a difference, and they got out and they and they and they voted. But what this verse is saying is that. That if you're if you reap uh, harsh consequences for your own bad decisions, then um, that's what you deserve. But if you do good, if you're innocent, like David in Psalm 59, if you're innocent and you take it patiently, then that's grace before God. And then in verse 21, Peter says, For to this you were called. This is your calling. Stamp it on your head. Tattoo it on the inside of your eyelids. You are called as a believer in Jesus Christ to suffer unjustly. That's part of what we should expect living in the devil's world. For to this you were called. 
because Christ also suffered for us. Not one of us is any better than Jesus. He is perfectly innocent. No taint of sin whatsoever, no personal sin, no inherited sin from Adam, no sin nature. He did not deserve any suffering whatsoever, and he took our suffering on himself on the cross. That is the pattern. To understand everything the New Testament says about this difficult topic of submission, you have to understand the person of Christ. So then Peter begins to quote from Isaiah 53, 9. He committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth. This is the, called the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus. And it's a quote from Psalm, um, from Isaiah 53, 9, which in the last part of the verse says, because he had no violence, literally the Hebrew means no wrong. He had done no wrong, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was perfectly sinless. Now, that's then described in the next three verses. That's where we stopped the last time. Who, referring to Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed. And when he was reviled, it was totally unjust. He wasn't worthy of being reviled. He wasn't worthy of suffering. He didn't threaten. But he committed himself to who? He turned it over to the Supreme Court of Heaven. He put it in the hands of the Lord. Later on in this in this book, in this epistle, Peter's going to say, cast your care upon the Lord. That's what Jesus did. That's the pattern. That's the example. He committed himself to him who judges righteously, who, who himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Another quote from Isaiah 53. For you were like sheep going astray. Another quote from Isaiah 53. Why does he go to Isaiah 53? Because in Isaiah 53, Jesus is presented as the suffering slave, the suffering servant. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to slaves. Slaves, obey your masters. So he's talking to Jesus as the ultimate slave, who is without sin and who suffers for all of us. And he submits himself, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I'm, we're going to come back to the details of those three verses, but I want to go to another section in Scripture in the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, because... The question that comes up here is really, we, we always want to focus on these exceptions. Well, what about when, and then we come up with circumstances and situations when somebody tells us to do something, asks us to do something, wants us to do something uh, that we don't want to do. Don't, am I not justified in disobeying them? So we're going to understand this more fully if we look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Philippians 2, 8, and we're going to think about this a little bit. Philippians 2, 8 says that Jesus, talking about Jesus, said he was found in appearance as a man. Now, that doesn't mean that he just looked like a man, but he wasn't. That was a, called docetism, that Jesus just sort of had on the... Uh, he, it was like he put on... Um, 
a, a cloak, a disguise of manhood, but, but this doesn't mean that. He, he becomes a man is what it says. We'll look at the details later. And he humbled himself. Now, how does he humble himself? How do you exercise humility in Scripture? You humble yourself by being obedient. If you're disobedient to authority, whether it's God, whether it's a husband, whether it's parents, whether it's a boss, if you submit yourself, if you don't submit, then you're not humble. By definition, you're arrogant. You have to think about that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Elsewhere in Scripture, it says, have you suffered to the point of bloodshed? Most of us haven't even suffered to the point of thinking about bloodshed. Writer of Hebrews says, have you suffered to the point of bloodshed? Paul says, have you become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, one of the most horrific, torturous, horrible deaths conceivable? Okay, now let's think a little bit about this whole topic of how do you communicate in a very pagan environment that has a very distorted view of what submission to authority is. Now let's think in terms of maybe two or three different pagan environments. One of the most horrid ones is Islam. In Islam, women are just marginally above animals. Okay? I mean, that's their theology. Women are not equal to men. Okay? So that's one option within the many options in the, in the world around us. Another, and, and, and let's, let's take Islam and push it back just a little more, that Islam has kind of a strange doctrine of creation. But you have man created, but it's not in the image of God like it is in Scripture. So you don't have an equality of person in Islam. Now let's think about other forms of paganism. Uh, whether you're talking about ancient paganism or modern paganism, neither of which have a, a view of man that elevates him above, uh, much above primordial slime. If you look at the ancient myths, for example, we'll take a Babylonian myth. The Egyptian myths were pretty much the same. Matter is eternal, and it's personified in the gods and goddesses of their, of their pantheon. And the way the universe gets created is usually along the lines of two gods or goddesses having a, uh, having a battle royal, and one of them kills the other, and from their body, the universe is created. So matter is really eternal. It just goes back. The gods and goddesses are part of the creation. So uh, from that, you find the gods and goddesses creating man not out of nothing, but they create man from whatever is there. It, it's a primitive view that is very, very similar to modern evolution. Modern evolution, you start off with matter. It's, it's really interesting. We, um, modern views of origin, modern, modern evolution has, we, we don't know the process. We don't know when it began. We don't know how 
it was it developed we don't know how long ago it happened and we don't know um uh, what what the mechanics were in other words it but we do know it happened that way. Isn't that interesting? You take, you take all these statements, we don't know this, we don't know that, we don't know this, we don't know that, but we do know it happened that way. That doesn't make sense. Um, but what you have is that in, in macroevolution, man is the product of an evolutionary process that took uh, billions of years and lots of infinitesimal changes that took place uh, that ultimately brought from from inorganic life to organic life to intelligent uh, sentient life. Now, what is the basic mechanism of of Darwinism? What's the basic mechanism of Darwinism? Survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. But the problem with survival of the fittest is it doesn't explain the arrival of the fittest. And in the survival of the fittest, the basic mechanic is struggle and fight so that one species is going to destroy and replace another species. One creature is going to destroy and replace another creature. Violence is the modus operandi of evolution. Without violence and without one creature asserting his superiority to destroy another creature, there's no advance. So evolutionary theory is based on creaturely dominance and destruction of lesser creatures. That's the metaphysic there. So let's plug this into an image. Here we're going to use this iceberg image. I've used this before. And in an iceberg, we only see 10% or so of the iceberg above the surface. What's below the surface is, is invisible to the eye. It's not readily apparent. Now, when we th talk about ideas, we see ideas at the surface, but ideas are the product of a lot of other assumptions that are below the surface. So there's a logical sequence that's going to go from the bottom up because what supports the top in, an, in any idea, remember, good ideas produce good consequences, bad ideas produce bad consequences. Any idea is grounded on uh, previous ideas and assumptions and presuppositions. So it starts from the bottom up. The foundation of all thought is what is called in philosophy metaphysics. Meta, meta means beyond. Physics means the nature or the natural world, the physical world. So it starts with something that goes beyond the physical world. In other words, how you view ultimate reality. Metaphysics is your view of what is eternal. Is it God? Is it matter? Is it energy? Is it nothing? You know, evolution says that nothing developed nothing. No, nothing developed something. How can something come out of nothing unless there's some external force or, or intelligence base that's putting the information into the system to create that? But they ignore that. So you have metaphysics. And then on metaphysics, once you get the idea that there is something... And the basic philosophical question that came out of Jean, came from Jean-Paul Sartre, I believe, was the basic question in, in life is, why is there something rather than nothing? That's the question. 
So once you establish that there's something and what that ultimate reality is, then you have to ask the question, well, how do you know that? Is it true? Uh, and how do you know truth? That's the area of epistemology. How do you know truth? How do you determine right from wrong or just from the unjust? And once you decide these questions as to what is right, how do you determine the difference between right and wrong and just from the unjust, this is what develops ethics. And ethics is the area of philosophy that talks about what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And social structures and organizations such as politics, which deals with justice and right and wrong, comes out of that. And so this is what you get at the upper level. At that upper level, you have where we talk about political, national, or individual decisions. So right now we're engaged in all this debate about different policies related to uh, foreign policy decisions, the Iran deal, uh, foreign policy decisions related to NAFTA and trade and all these other things. And we argue at this upper level but everything that we talk about is dependent upon a presuppositional ethic, which is dependent upon a presuppositional epistemology, which is dependent upon a presuppositional metaphysic. That's where the discussion needs to take place. And as we get into the pressures of life, we're forced to think about things rather than just at the surface level. And um, so that drives us down to ultimate reality. It's only when life gets really tough that we start asking the questions, well, why am I here? I was talking with um, someone, uh, someone recently, I can't think of who it was right now, and um, they were discussing a um, situation with uh, an individual who had, uh, who had been brought home by... Um, brought home by his girlfriend to meet her parents. And her father sat him down, getting to know him, and said, well, tell me. What, tell me about your relationship with God. And this young man had never even thought about it, even, had no concept of what God was. And they ended up spending two or three hours in the afternoon just having that discussion and taking a long walk. And when the, the kid came home, who was a Ph.D. student, he realized there was a whole dimension to, to life and thought that he had never, ever considered. So the pressures of life drive us to think about these questions of ultimate reality. Now, what I have here in the slide is this is the area that where we talk and argue, but the real issues are these issues related to ultimate reality and epistemology. So when we talk at the level up here... We're asking the question, how do we submit to authority? Why should we submit to authority? Why should we submit to an unjust ruler? Why should we submit to an unjust husband or unjust parents? And, you know, as I've nuanced this in the past, we're not talking about somebody who's asking, telling us to do something that is uh, prohibited by the Bible. We're talking about somebody who wants us to do something we just don't want to do. So we have to understand... In the area of submission to authority, God. God is what functions at the ultimate level of metaphysics. We can't talk, you can't talk about authority and submission to authority without talking about God. If you don't talk about God, you can't understand the concept. So here we're going to go to a different slide here. And this is a slide that is going to talk about God, help us understand the basic nature of God. God is eternal. 
and God eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the early church, they really wrestled with how to express this concept. Are we talking about three gods? Well, that would be what's called tritheism. Tri meaning three, theism meaning gods, that we are worshiping three gods. Or are we worshiping a god who just puts on different masks or appears in different modes? So that was called modalism. So for a while in the Old Testament, God appeared with the mask of the Father. Then he shows up 400 years later, and he's got on the mask of the Son. And then the Son leaves, and he puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit. You've got one person, one essence. He just puts on different costumes. That's called modalism. And what came out of that, as it was finally defined by the Council of Nicaea in 325, is the doctrine of the Trinity. And in the doctrine of the Trinity, what we see is that the Father is God, one in essence, the Holy Spirit is God, one in essence, and the Son is God, one in essence. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each equally divine. They have equal essence. One is not greater than the other. One is not more powerful. One does not have more knowledge. One does not have more wisdom. One is not more righteous. One is not more loving than the other. They are equal in every single area of essence. They are essentially the same. However, the Son is not the Father. He is distinct in his person. He is a distinct individual. The Son is not the Father, but He is perfectly, absolutely, eternally equal with the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct persons, but they have the same essence. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, with one essence. They are absolutely, totally equal with each other. Now, that's a big issue today. It's a big issue in politics. We want to be equal. We want to be egalitarians. That part of the French Revolution is egalité. Is that right? We want to be equal, okay? We don't want to be treated less than anyone else. Ultimately, in Christianity... The bottom line is we are patterned after a God who is three in one. He is equal in essence so that the Father equals the Son, the Son equals the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit equals the Father. So they are, here's the word, ontologically equal metaphysically equal. They are equal in their being. Now, see, if you look at Islam, Islam, you just have one God, a singular monotheism. He's not equal to anyone, just himself. His, when he creates, he creates only creatures who have a hierarchy. 
but no equality because there's no plurality in Allah. He's a singularity. He's a monadic God. I'm using a lot of big words, but that's the language of philosophy because it helps you think through these critical issues of equality and subordination because you see the son obeys the father. A wife obeys her husband, but biblically Christianity, she's equal to him. The son is equal to the father. To, this, to say that it's wrong, existentially wrong, to make a woman submit to a man is to make a theological blasphemous statement because it implies that subordination means inequality. And biblically, subordination does not mean inequality because eternally in the Trinity, the Son is submitted to the Father and at the same time is totally and absolutely equal to the Father. The only reason that subordination manifests as inequality is because of a little three-letter word. What's that word? Sin. But if you live in a culture that rejects the notion of inherent sin and corruption, then you can't even talk about this anymore. Because as far as you're concerned, in a perfect world, oh, we're not in a perfect world, are we? But they don't have a basis for talking about that. Because as far as they're concerned, they, when they deny sin, um, they're denying reality. Now, the son not only obeys the father, but the son and the father send the Holy Spirit. So what we see within the Godhead is that there's total equality in terms of essence or being. The fancy word is ontology or metaphysics. There's total oneness, total equality in essence, but a different, they have different roles. You can think about a football team. You have two or three different athletes on a football team. I know you have higher numbers of players, but we're just going to talk about three of them. And they may be considered to be virtually equal in their abilities as, an, as athletes. But one's a tight end. One is a defensive tackle. And the other is a quarterback. They are equal as in terms of members of the team and in terms of athletic ability, but they have different roles and functions on the team. That doesn't mean one is a better person than the other or one is a worse person than the other. So you have, uh, you have these role distinctions in the Godhead. So let's summarize this. The three persons of the Trinity are equal in their being, essence, and deity. There's nothing that would make one superior to the other. Second, just for terminology's sake, this is called ontological or metaphysical equality, or what we would call uh, equality of essence in terms of their being. Yet, point number three, each has a distinct role. The father's the planner. For example, in creation, the father's the planner. The son carries out the plan, uh, and the spirit reveals the plan. But they're all involved 
and because they are of a metaphysical unity, each is involved in the work of the other one. And this is referred to as economic distinctions. So they are, are you ready? Ontologically equal or essentially equal, but they are distinct in role. It's the same, that's a pattern that you can apply to the home. Every person in the home is in the image and likeness of God and deserves respect and deserves um, to be treated as an image bearer. But each was designed by God to play a different role and to have different, different functions. The same thing applies to government. You go to, the, you go to government, and government is designed to carry out certain uh, rulership functions, organizational functions, and judicial functions, but it is not to be uh, treated and abused so that uh, one person or one group is treated more equal than another. When you get into elitism, which is where we have come in this country and many other countries, just this is what we got away from in the 1600s and 1700s. When you get this elitist mentality, a perfect example of this, if you pass a, a health law that applies to all the citizens... If it doesn't apply to equally to every member of the government, then you have an elitist government. And that violates the basic principle of the Constitution. So there are clearly economic or functional distinctions between the members of the government and citizens, but they are to be treated equally. Now, you don't have a basis for that metaphysically in Islam. So there's no re- you'll never, ever be able to export Western democracy, which grows out of this Christian idea, this idea of the Trinity. You'll never be able to export that to a Muslim country. It will never, ever, ever work. It is ideologically impossible and logically irrational. This I came out when George Bush, uh, after 9-11, said we're going to uh, export democracy to the Middle East. I knew right away this man is a fool, an absolute idiot, and he is going to do nothing but cause more trouble because a bad idea has bad consequences. And that's what we saw with all the wars and all the problems in the first part of the 20th century. And this is what happens because of sin in marriage, is you have one person who wants to dominate the other person. So biblical submission reflects the divine nature of God himself. The Son is submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit is submitted to the Son and the Father. And we look at Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that they are equally in the image of God. That means, in essence, every human being is equal to every other human being. That came across in the Declaration of Independence. That we are endowed by who? By nature, 
We are endowed by the government. No, we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, if you take away the idea of a creator who endows rights, then you can't talk about equality anymore. Because when you look at the pagan mythology, whether it's ancient, uh, ancient uh, Greece or Rome or Babylon or Egypt, or whether you're talking about the modern origin myth of Darwinian evolution, you don't have a tool to, dis- to give equality. Because in evolution, you don't have equality. You have dominance. It comes out of the existential feature of uh, our principle of, of evolution, which is survival of the fittest. It makes everything a struggle. And whoever can dominate the other wins. And we've seen the outworking of Darwinian evolution in ideology with social Darwinism that gave us those wonderful people in the black uniforms and the uh, death's head insignia and the death camps. And they gave us the death camps in Poland and the murder of six million Jews plus the gypsies and Jehovah's Witnesses and and uh, a number number of other political dissenters in Polish and Russians as well. Okay, that's social Darwinism. Now, since since this Holocaust, Western societies rejected social Darwinism. But there's no logical, rational, ideological basis for rejecting it. Other than, oops, it it was a, it produced a bad consequence. Well, that's because the bad idea of Darwinism is what produced it, not social Darwinism. That's just the application of it. But what it tells us is that if you take God out of the equation, and you remove the Bible, then you don't have a basis for talking about equality. So when you're talking with somebody, you say, well, okay, you think that somehow we shouldn't, we shouldn't. Um, uh, you want to talk about equal rights for women. Okay, well, let's just talk about that. Where does that concept of rights come from? It comes from the Declaration of Independence. Well, where does it, that get, get their idea? Well, from the, from the Creator. Well, if you take away the Creator and you take away the Bible, you, where, do you, how, where do you get the idea of talking about rights? What's the foundation for talking about the fact that I have, have certain rights? Well, then you got to say they come from the government. Uh-oh, now we have a real problem because the government can't be the source of our rights because if the government is the source of our rights, then the government can take the rights away from us. And now we have, now we have a real problem. So we have to talk about this and, and to help people think through by asking questions. You know, that's what Jesus did. He asked a lot of questions. Help them think it through. Don't just tell them what the answers are, bang them over the head with them, but ask them questions. Help them go through the process of self-discovery. And where do you get these ideas, and where does that come from? And, and in Christianity, you have men and women who are equal in being, essence, personhood, and humanity. But God created them with different roles. He created them different. The woman was created to be a helper to the man. She has a distinct role. He's created first. He's the one who's given the cultural mandate before Eve is created. He's the one who's told to go out and to take dominion over the creation. So God says, I'm going to make a helper. Well, 
modern feminism comes along and say that's a demeaning role to be an assistant to be a helper she he should be the main person okay now you've got another theological problem because the word helper is not ever used of the man but it's used many times of god for example deuteronomy 33:29 happier you o israel who is like you a people saved by the lord the shield of your answer, the shield of your help. God is the helper. Only the woman, the wife, and God are given that great title of being an answer, a helper. It shows up in that term in 1 Samuel seven twelve, Ebenezer. Eben is the word for stone. Ezer is the word for help. So it's the rock of help. It was a monument. Uh, when um, the Philistines attacked Israel as they were having a meeting at uh, Mizpah, uh, the Lord defeated them in a mighty uh, act, a mighty miraculous act. And to commemorate that, Samuel erected this stone uh, between Mizpah and Shen, uh, called it Ebenezer, which means the stone of God's help. So it's a reminder that God is the one who helps us. Psalm 70, verse 5, But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my Azer. You are my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 21, 2, My help, my Azer, comes from the Lord. Our help, Azer again, or some form of that word. These are different different forms. Our Azer is the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 146.5, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, Azer, again, whose hope is in the Lord God. So again and again and again, we see this principle. So all human beings, whether you're slaves, wives, or children, are equal in being in essence, and as such, in they're in the image of God, and they should be treated uh, with respect. I left a word out there, being in the image of God. Neither is superior in their essence to another. That's the basis for respect and good manners. Etiquette didn't just pop out because it was a good idea. If you read the origin of these things, it was designed for two things. Number one, to teach people, give people self-discipline and restraint for their sin nature. And two, to show respect for others who are in the image and likeness of God. So as I've said, this is called ontological or metaphysical equality. Basically, it means equality of essence or being. Yet each has distinct roles. Men and women have distinct roles, uh, just like in the Trinity. And biblical submission differs from pagan submission in that paganism has different orders of humans and is often predicated on, on power and might and not predicated on equality. So if you're going to take the Bible out of the classroom and out of the university, then you, don't, you, you also have to take out of the classroom and out of the courtroom and out of the university everything we get from the Bible. Respect for authority, individual civil rights, rights of, of uh, submission, rights of leadership, all of these things. You can't even talk about those things because if, once you take out the Bible, take everything with it. It's okay to murder. It's okay to have multiple wives. It's okay to gossip and slander. It's, it's okay to be a false witness because the only reason you can say that you can't do those things is because of the Bible.
So we have to hold them to be logical. Take out the Bible, take out everything you get from the Bible, from the culture, from the courts, from law, everything else, and we'll descend into absolute anarchy. We'll see how I thought we'd get there tonight, but we won't. We'll come back and look at this next time in Philippians chapter 2. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to think through these important issues, especially as they relate to our culture, and discussions we'll get in with family and friends and those around us. Uh, Help us to be good, faithful witnesses, not antagonistic witnesses, not uh, becoming embattled or belligerent, but but helping people out of love to understand what the issues uh, really are so that they can be helped in their thinking and ultimately in terms of giving the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.